was just thinking about him in the 1930s wrestling with the failure of kind of the this liberal internationalist order um and i feel the the central metaphor obviously being chess here like i i find it fascinating it's like trying to limit the board to make strategic sense in order to succeed but the cost of those limitations like the cost of turning the board into this many pieces and this many um spots and um I guess I really appreciate his fight, uh, how he is wrestling with um, the cost of success almost um, with this uh, central, like, um, yeah, this central conflict between two different ways of seeing the world. Um, and so uh, and I think it ties very much to like what you're saying earlier, David, about the, um, when you try to understand political landscapes and how to be successful in political landscapes, but like at what cost um, and I guess power politics versus truth. One of these old arguments that go uh, come up again and again. Um, but yeah, that was my thought on that. Yeah, me too. Uh, I find it hard to really um, discount a writer's biography from their work when I'm reading it just in general. Uh, maybe some people don't, don't like that or try not to do it, but for me, it just kind of goes with it. I like to know about the writer and their life and the circumstances which they lived. And that gives me a lot of context on uh, what's in their work. And I think with someone like, you know, Stefan Zweig we're talking about here, especially you can't possibly separate his biography from his work, especially in this case, you know, he's, he was a suicide, 1942, uh, and a self, during self-exile in Brazil, escaping from the Nazi regime, which he obviously detested, and they burned all his works. And, and in the end, he was in such despair about their success that he killed himself. And he left a suicide note about it, how you know he hoped that they would lose one day, but he was impatient. Uh, I don't remember the actual words, but yeah, this, this actual novella or short, I guess it's a longer short story or novella, chess story, which we're talking about, was the, the last thing he wrote before he killed himself. So he wrote it, I think, the end of 1941, and, and then um, it was published after his death. So, you know, it, it's just kind of impossible to separate the work from, you know, this actual story, in my opinion. And there really are a lot of parallels we could find with um, his his thoughts on the Nazis was obviously one of the main, the main character in the story was, uh, was held by the Gestapo. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, there's so many things we could analyze about it there, but more than probably anything else I've read by him, this is very much more political work or it gets into current politics uh, a lot and it's uh, strongly biographical in some way. Should we, uh, should, would either of you like to um, talk briefly about the basic plot of the story? Or I can really quickly, just for listeners who may not yeah. be familiar with right, the ahead. Royal Game, AKA chess story. Yeah, take it away, Adrian. <laughs> so as far as I, um, I, I read it once and greatly enjoyed it. Um, and I read the intro afterwards to get um, I, the, the, the version that you shared with us, David, was, the, uh, was introduced by a professor named Peter Gay, uh, who I guess is a professor emeritus at Yale. I, I don't know if he's still around, but I'd, I'd like to look him up. Um, that the plot is there, and I'm going to paint this with extremely broad brushstrokes. Um, a group of people are on a steamship that is going, I think, to America or to South America? I don't remember where. South America. America from going to South America. And it has on it the reigning world champion of chess, who's a prodigy who knows nothing about anything outside of chess. And furthermore, has no imagination about chess itself, just plays chess automatically like a computer would, inexorably. And this uh, character defeats uh, the narrator and somebody else on the cruise that um, has a more sort of adversarial 
relationship to playing chess and is in the process of beating uh, this adversarial chess player a second time when um, a, an unnamed character uh, who I think in the book is known as uh, Dr. B um, comes up and gives the adversarial character sufficient advice to draw against all odds with this chess prodigy. And the chess prodigy uh, asks for a rematch. Uh, Dr. B demurs. The narrator hunts Dr. B down and learns from Dr. B that he, the, 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 the nature of his uncanny uh, ability uh, with chess and uh, sets up a rematch between Dr. B and the chess prodigy. And I won't spoil what happens next, but suffice it to say, the reason that Dr. B is so uh, preternaturally gifted with chess is sort of like the diametric opposite of the chess prodigy itself. It turns out that Dr. B was interned in a, con uh, not in a concentration camp, he was interned by the Gestapo. And over the course of many months, uh, his, his one book was a, a, a book that detailed the 150, uh, 150 of the best chess matches of all time. And he memorizes them and then he starts playing them in his mind. And he becomes both a chess virtuoso uh, through practice and through um, improvisation, but also he becomes maddened and addicted to um, playing them. And there's this kind of contrast between the chess prodigy who on a certain level cares more about money than chess, like doesn't actually seem to care that much about the game and the virtuoso who depends for his life on chess, but can't play it or else he turns into this kind of um, um, maddened character. That's the, I guess the overall gist of it. Yeah, I think that's a great um, explanation of the overall plot. And it's making me think of another, I guess, plot angle. And that's the author's choice to put it on a, essentially a cruise, a cruise ship, you know, a ship going down to Brazil. And we're talking just about like the, the biographical implications and like the force and like all these conversations that are ongoing in the world and the, the Gestapo and, and so forth. But the choice that fascinated me was the choice by the author to put this in this kind of leisure setting, um, this kind of very pleasurable venue for this to take place. Uh, and this is, this, this is one of my main points, I guess, for the conversation is that it's a game we're talking about, right? The, the vibe as I read that early stages, it reminded me of my, like, the, those like 19th century novels, the Dickens, the, the Dickens and like the Robert Louis Stevenson, enjoyable experience and where this where the narrator is trying to win at chess and they're about to win the 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 or beat the chess champion of the world and it's so ridiculous in the context of this world war that's going on right and these like kind of very real things that come with the second world war yet there's something beautiful and something i really enjoyed about how he chose to set it up that way how he chose to put this on this very distant spot where almost nothing is really at stake. And I think that has a lot to do with the art of the book itself and why it works for me and why it's unique maybe from a lot of the other World War II uh, works that I've read. Uh, and so that's one of the thoughts I put out and I think that has to do with the, the choice of the plot to put it so far away and in middle of the water. Um, I think there's something interesting there about the appeal for me anyways. Yeah, Mike, I think you're onto something there because um... I've read a lot of Zweig's work, and um, I know he's often described as having very enjoyable prose. It's very fast-paced, not like an adventure, but it keeps you keep wanting to read and to know more. And he, all his stories, which are all quite short usually, follow uh, a lot of the same patterns, which, you know, they're usually set by a big group of people from different places, usually around Europe, mostly, in Central Europe, of sort of a, a bourgeois culture of like an old world that's, that doesn't exist anymore. Probably even when he was writing from like old Vienna and it's, it's filled with um, literary people and typical high society characters, usually in some context outside of real life. Like it would be some resort on, a, on the Riviera or a, you know, a Swiss hotel. And he gets these groups of peoples together and just, um, you get a lot of psychological drama and interaction. 
sort of on a, a low level, but he does it in a way that's always fascinating, really, I think. And he's a great writer, in my opinion. And this is, uh, I think this work in itself is probably some kind of a minor masterpiece or, you know, should be maybe much more well-known in the, the English-speaking world, at least. I think one thing to add, though, is uh, all the things I've read by him, they're very noticeably not political in any way, really. I mean, I think he almost never touched on anything current or anything that could even be close to politics. It was always psychological, uh, individual uh, situations, usually about love affairs and people's emotions. And yet we never get any sort of sense of an outside world. And this, this story itself, that's something that jumped out at me because obviously it has a, a huge political context where he, uh, he personally talks about the Nazis and the Gestapo and you know what's actually happening in real time, which is very unusual for this writer. And like I said, that fits into his biography is he himself was a, an extremely popular writer in the German speaking world and probably all around the world for the 20s and 30s. But as a, a person of Jewish heritage, he, he was a victim of the Nazis and his books were burned and he found himself basically without a job and in exile. And it was a hugely traumatic experience for him, we can imagine. And I think this story, we're really getting some part of that inside the story. You know, he talks about this character, Dr. B, who was subjected to the Gestapo's interrogation, even, uh, and it, even if that was in a hotel, strangely enough, and not in a concentration camp, and he wasn't even physically tortured or anything that the the situation of dr b and himself is a strange exception to the normal nazi um you know victims tale we're used to i think yeah that's something that like that's that goes along with this choice i mean it's this artful parallel that already like you mentioned this he has a long history of writing stories that are held at resorts and here we have a cruise ship but yet the the more openly political aspect of the story that is dealing with what I guess maybe writers after the war would seem like non-escapist kind of the realities of the world what's happening he he creates like you said David it's like the he's held in a, a hotel right and it's at a hotel and Adrian describes some of this but it's an absolutely like blank hotel room it's a different form of torture not a physical torture and I guess that's one of the main things that appealed to me about this book is because I mean there's so much sensationalism around World War II literature and 20th century literature that focuses on the violent consequences and for good reason of the war. But this, through the, like, the unique angle that he has, uh, seems to open up something new. Uh, and it does have like that edge, David, as you mentioned, of like an old an older way of thinking that's already gone and on its way out. And it's still trying to create the space for it. Um, and this idea of that torture being essentially this isolation that's so extreme, there, there's nothing but nothing around the narrator. It's such a, a decisive contrast to um, a world that is so noisy. I found that fascinating in terms of how he continually, even though this is, like you said, David, like a, a more openly biographical, in some ways, story and touching on the realities of the world and political, it also has such a, a sharp angle away from that it it opens up the conversation in new directions uh and seems you can look at it two ways it's holding on to this older idea of individualism i feel of a different kind of art and it's kind of like a swan song for that or it's kind of uh holding on to that kind of beating possibility of something different than the din and chaos that the 20th century has become. So yeah, I appreciate your thoughts in terms of the relation of the politics to his stories. Because I think he's often critiqued for not being political. And he was, I think, even with like the Jewish exile, right, when as he leaves, like he refused to come to the defense of the Jewish community in any way, or become active in politics like a lot of people thought he should have. And it's always interesting why artists choose to do that, which kind of space they're trying to create for themselves if this book successfully navigates that, or some people might read this as just a massive act of escapism. I don't know. What did you all think? Well, yeah, I actually thought, thought it was a very political book. And, and part of that is because I've been primed to. I think 
any reader in the 21st century, anyone with you know a college education, is is ready to read a story like the one that we did and find meanings in it that are sensible. The lack of a physical or spiritual torture seems perfectly in tune with what we know about the Nazis, which is that as the evil bad guy, they figure out what the thing is that you're going that's going to be most terrifying or awful for you. And then they they do that thing to you. Like that's the awful that's one of the awful things about the Nazis. The other awful thing about the Nazis is that it doesn't even matter. Is it that like whatever the thing that you know or the you know the information you have, like that's you think that's important. It's important to you and who you are, but it isn't even actually all that important to the Nazis. So like there's that there's that moment in the story where he's broken. They actually break him. He yells out after the guard, but the guard does like, I'll tell you everything. Like I'm done with this, please. You know, I'll give you everything, anything you want. And the guard is like turned the corner and doesn't hear him. (laughs) Or maybe he does, you know, it's in, in, in what is he doing? Like, why is he in prison? It's because he's incredibly wealthy and he's part of an, an influential family that knows where so much money is that it is of strategic importance to the Nazis to get it. He's related to the doctor of the, the king. He's related to uh, the, 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 the king's physician. He's related to, he's part of this family that like does all of the estate work for the monasteries. So to your point about escapism, uh, Mike, I think that is how he tells the story offers as uh, offers itself as a kind of indictment of the type of person that he is, or at least the background that he's from. And I, I saw in the character of the, I, I would mispronounce his name if I were to attempt it, so I won't, um, the, 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 the reigning chess master. Like the reigning chess master to me seems like how he probably envisions the Nazis in a certain level, this kind of like beast style, barely human, just interested in what it is in front of you and money and domination and somehow they do it better, even though they themselves are not better. And, and the character of Dr. B is the aristocracy, is the people who have the wealth and can appreciate these things and can so totally invest themselves in the game that they can actually play both sides of the game at the same time. And yet, ultimately, it doesn't matter. Yeah, right. Adrian. That's political. <laughs> the, uh, that, that's another interesting little aspect about Dr. B. He was a, a Nazi victim, but not as a Jew or minority or the people we all we think about the most, but as a an old royalist, you know, long after the the Austrian monarchy is gone, and he's some, yeah, aristocracy, and he's a, some kind of supporter of the Habsburg pretender. I, I suppose so it's just a strange configuration there. But ultimately, I don't think it's necessarily so relevant. But you bring up the uh, antagonist. Uh, I think Sentovic is probably how we say it. It's a Croatian. I believe, peasant. The, the story, once again, is really interesting because it starts with an origin story of this uh, chess master, Sentovic. And then later we get the sort of origin story of Dr. B. And it's, they're both in depth and very psychological. But also, um, like I said, I think the prose and the description is just great. And I think there's some good quotes here where uh, the Sentovic is some sort of an idiot savant, right? He knows nothing about nothing, right? All his opponents (laughs) mock him constantly. He even knows it and he doesn't care. He just plays chess to get money and uh, he has no personality. He's never spoken a word to anyone, apparently. So yeah, he's like a machine. But uh, the text itself talks a lot about monomaniacs. And there's even a lot of good quotes in here about monomaniacs and you mentioned it but i think in this character we're not he's not necessarily a fascist himself he he's not nearly on that level but i think in some way we're supposed to think of him as uh thinking in the way of a fascist but one, there's an early quote um by the narrator i've got here all my life i have been passionately interested in monomaniacs of any kind people carried away by a single idea The more one limits oneself, the closer one is to the infinite. These people, as unworldly as they seem, burrow like termites into their own particular material to construct in miniature 
a strange and utterly individual image of the world. That's one description and he's got more of these people who you know are obsessed by one thing. And obsession itself is also a big idea here. Going to extremes, being obsessed with anything. And uh, Dr. B becomes obsessed and then psychologically disturbed. But also Sentovich is just this chess monomaniac who doesn't exist really on any other level almost. In a way, somehow, you know, that's reminiscent to me of a Hitler, for example. Yeah, it's, it's great because I, I feel, I love that quote. I had that quote picked out here too. And I think a great work of literature has to work on multiple levels, right? And so you could read that politically if you wanted to, but you can also read that as at the same time, you should read it as um, both of these at once is a kind of commentary on art and how we construct worlds and understand the world and imagine the world. And this idea of like someone who works like a termite on their own particular material to construct an, a world that just reflects themselves and who digs so deeply into that, it creates this kind of powerful replication and magnif magnification of the self that is incredible if you look at it, that it's possible, um, which could be connected to Nazis, but it could connect it to a certain form of art too. And then versus Dr. B, right, you have someone like Adrian mentioned, who has the imagination to not even see the board, but to create the chess match and then to imagine himself as two different people in the chess match. And so the expansive imagination that is able to see both sides of a predicament and create art maybe, or create worlds where it is able to simultaneously have antithetical aspects in it. And I don't think, that's what I think is a great book because like any good tragedy, you have like a conflict between two very powerful ways of truths, right? And how one leads to insanity uh, with this focus just on burrowing, burrowing down with logic and then with an over imagination that tries to contain multiple worlds and how it breaks down that way too. That's what struck me as like very artful of the book itself is how it, it sets these up in through like a central metaphor that is seemingly frivolous and uh, simplistic and, and not important. And I, I feel that was expertly done. Yeah, and, I, and this is a, an old conversation in all forms of art, but actually like post uh, Shakespearean world. I mean, I feel that quote about the closer one is to the infinite, like comes straight out of like Hamlet, like the king of the infinite space, you know, like count me, king of infinite space, put me in the nutshell. And uh, this kind of back and forth about the, not just the political dangers of it, um, but I guess as an artist, and if we take Sveg's, like the fact that he committed suicide, he sent this book into the publisher, right? You caught that, right? And he, after he sent it in, the next day he committed suicide. And it's really interesting if you think of it, not just a meditation on the political world, like encroaching into his world, because he had escaped, he was in Brazil, but also an older sensibility about art and the world and the possibilities of humans and the individual. You have all that, like David was saying earlier, you, you kind of collapsed into this one central metaphor, which makes it incredibly powerful work in that respect, but not overbearing because it's just an enjoyable story. Like you said, David, it, 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 it's like uh, you, every single character is, is likable, even the bad ones. I mean, you don't meet the Gestapo really. Uh, and so you uh, even, what is it, O'Connor or McConnor, the, uh, the Scotsman, I mean, it's funny. I mean, he's like a hyper-capitalist, you know, but he, and he's so much pride. He can't, he'll give all his money away to defeat the, the reigning chess master, which is ridiculous, but not unlikable. And it does definitely harks back to an older world, I feel, which might have a certain nostalgia, which, which can be dangerous. I thought, you know, another thing that jumps out at me now in retrospect, and I think that was sensed while I was reading it, is a, a, a tribute to the author's skill is to your points about, about it not being political, you know, front and center, it being human uh, and it, it dealing with human questions and, and, and very deep, uh, very profound philosophical questions is that, you know, we, and I'm gonna throw the word fascism around, you know, very casually for a moment here, but, you know, fascism is deeply misunderstood. We've written about this for the last like four or five years how when people talk about the problem of fascism, and fascism is actually, it's a sophisticated problem. 
you could read about the type of people who became fascists probably in literature going back hundreds of years. I think a fascist is, is, is a modern problem, specifically a fascist. But you can read about the type of person who becomes a fascist in literature, you know, as, 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 as old as, as we have it. And you, because it, it, it takes certain assumptions, like, but I, I don't mean to suggest that the chess master, um, the, the antagonist, Sentevich, is a fascist. I feel that he sort of like occupies the space of the fascist and probably does so in a way in Zweig's mind because that's what he's thinking about. But you could just as easily see this character in a Russian novel being described by somebody talking about one of the Soviet proletariats who'd come to the manor to sort of unseat the, the lord and the lady and just sort of like take all of the artistic things and go and sell them for the USSR. And that's not to suggest that fascists and you know, the people from the USSR, Bolsheviks were the same. They're not the same. But there's a kind of person that I think is often opposed to the artist, a, a person who only thinks in terms of cost, in terms of gain, in terms of what I need, that, is off, that often ends up playing those roles. And when you see a person who has nothing, who is in that role, being described in literature in those terms, it's very difficult, depending on the circumstances, not to see in contemporary times their analogous forms. You know, who is a person who wants you know, as much money as possible um, simply because they can get it. And, and, and that is the goal to them. Like we know what this person looks like. We didn't even need to use names, but that is the person that is the threat in this book, the real threat to something as trivial as you said, Mike, as the game of chess, but it's not just the game of chess. It's enjoyment. It's how human beings enjoy their time. It's how human beings survive. It's something that's far more important than just a game. It's, it's imagination and creativity. And when, um, and when a certain type of person gets access to that, then that, that, that's the most depressing thing of all. When art ceases to be useful um, because it is art or a game, that's, that's sort of like a, one of the indications that you're dealing with a, a time of, of fascistic madness. Yeah, exactly. And we've got another... Um just a perfect quote from Zweig in the book about this, the same thing I wanted to bring up. And they're talking about Sintovich again, I believe, who's, he's just kind of described as a lump. You know, he, he doesn't exist mentally. He's, he becomes the best in the world at this very intellectual game. The quote is, isn't it confoundedly easy to think you're a great man if you aren't burdened with the slightest idea that Rembrandt, Beethoven, Dante, or Napoleon ever existed? I think it's just, there's so many these types of quotes in, um, in Zweig's work in general that are very profound and very literary, intellectual, but also he reaches um, a very psychological aspect of, of people. Even this Sintovich, who's uh, definitely not literary. But, you know, when we talk about politics again, you know, something we've... Uh, we, We've mentioned a couple times, maybe, with the current occupant of the White House, is you you get these types of feelings sometimes. You read old books, and they have characters like this, um, crude people who only care about money, very uncultured. Or this quote about, you think you're a great man because you don't know anything else about history or literature. And it's kind of another illustration how it's really impossible to escape politics. and. And I think that's a statement in itself. Yeah. I love your picking the same quotes. <laughs> it's this conversation about like what greatness has become, what it's possible, how people understand what greatness is in this kind of this new landscape, which is the tragedy I feel. And that quote again, like it isn't damn easy to think you're a great man if you aren't troubled. That's why I like the chess metaphor too. I mean, if you limit the spaces if you create a board, right, and you limit, it's a lot easier to become great in those confines. And it reminds me of like a lot of conversations about like American transcendentalism and things like that. If you, if you make a confined space, it's much easier to be king. It's much easier to be brilliant. And maybe that's a good thing 
in some respects, but it leaves off uh, that kind of infinity that's beyond that Adrian used the word imagination and games and art that allows us to kind of to touch those things. And like, as the world becomes more political and things become like that chessboard, people can become great within the confines of it. But then, uh, yeah, you, you lose maybe the possibility of this not just older, but like true kind of greatness. And I feel that's kind of like the horror at the back of this book, even more so because the, the counter character, right, Dr. B, who can escape this and go beyond it is broken. I mean, it's a central thing in this at the end. I mean, he can't, he loses. I, I mean, not to ruin it. I think it's okay to ruin books. It's about the art, the whole thing. He ends up losing and he can't sustain, he falls like within the board that's there, the physical. And it's this kind of tragic collapse of maybe it never really happened. Maybe Dante isn't as great as we think he was. But this possibility that our imagination can extend outside of the physical. And uh, I, I find it crushing at the end. But also at the same time, uh, it's done really well and artfully. So it doesn't feel crushing for the reader, even though he's, he is reporting something that is political, but also that goes beyond political. It's like about the limitations of the political, a failure to imagine anything outside of a chessboard. Well, I think it also speaks to, if we can mix a little bit of biography into this, it seems that the piece was written, the book was written at a time of despair for the author. And given that you know, there's a kind of stand-in for the, the, the brutal and vengeful and materialistic powers uh, that were ascendant in his world in the early 1940s. I think it's, it's not impossible that what he was, one of the things he was saying there was that ultimately art isn't the answer. The answer to fascism, the answer to brutality and banality and vengeful thinking isn't simply art and imagination. Really the, the problem and I'm, I'm not saying that this is the case, I'm saying that this, this may be how he was seeing it at the moment that he composed the, the, the book. The, the real problem is that once you're on the chessboard, the only person who can win ultimately is this brutal and banal person, that that's inevitable. I, another thing that I think is worth considering here is that that person no longer, while that person does exist, that type of person that is the chess master, that person has also been replaced by a computer which is kind of crazy in our day and age, not just that person and not just on the chess board. I mean, yes, on the chess board, but also, you know, in finance, also in all of the places that that person used to exist most hurtfully, um, you know, those processes are carried out now by computers far more effectively than, uh, than even the most, uh, you know, skillful chess prodigy or financial wizard. And so from that perspective, his, his despair was not perhaps unfounded. Yeah, right. I wanted to go back one second to what actually happened in the end. We know Dr. B played a match against Sintovich and he actually won the first match. And Sintovich has no, reacts, no reaction whatsoever. Uh, he just says, rematch. And Dr. B who had previously agreed to only play one game because he knew the dangers of getting back into his uh, frenzied, maniacal state of obsession. He's like, kind of like a gambler, I suppose, and, you know, this addiction. But yeah, he agreed to play a second game. And at this point, Sintovich knew that the weakness of uh, Dr. B was impatience. He was playing so quick, and Sintovich was so slow and plodding. Um, so he took the maximum time for each move and basically drove Dr. B crazy. Dr. B was playing multiple games in his head while he waited. And at the end, Dr. B blurted out a move uh, and like he'd won because he was thinking of another game that, that was in his head, but it wasn't the real game. And in the end, it's not that Sintovich won, it's that he manipulated cruelly this weakness of his opponent. And uh, he found a way to, uh, to drive him crazy basically and then dr b just kind of um sneaks off and disappears and we were told that he'll never play again but it's not necessarily that he loses or he he kills himself or anything as a character he just 
it's he's lost this one aspect of greatness I suppose he achieved he can never play but yeah he was manipulated I think and so he lost in this way which also echoes you know something about a terroristic uh, dictator or you know the inter interrogation of the Gestapo and to find a weakness or you know O'Brien 1984 and th this type of uh, thing totalitarian almost well and it underlines too that the antagonist Sentovich I finally remembered is not actually interested in the game of chess he's simply interested in defeating opponents for really for the purposes of gaining money and prestige which leads to money one can imagine if Sentovich were the type of sort of dramatical antagonist um, within the context of chess as a game, rather than the laws of chess or the rules of chess, of course he would be playing to beat Dr. B. And so he would be playing as quickly as possible to test Dr. B at the power, at the maximum of Dr. B. Um, but he isn't interested, his character isn't interested at all. He's interested in nothing except winning chess games to preserve or expand his reputation and make more money. That's it. That is the only, that's what he is there to do. Right. And just to accentuate that, I think also just the last uh, understatement of the, the book is something like Sintovich explaining, uh, oh, too bad he quit. He actually was uh, extraordinarily talented for, uh, for an amateur or something like that. And that was like the most he's ever said, but it's still such a huge understatement and almost a non-statement like oh he was pretty good but too bad well and and, and really quickly to, to to jump on there the, in the context of the book dr b plays one complete game in his entire life which is the game where he beats Sentovich. he plays an incomplete game which results in a loss and he gives advice to some people while he's walking by but the only game of chess that he ever plays in his life, if we're to believe him as a, you know, as a character and there's no reason not to, is that one game that he plays and defeats, where he defeats uh, Sentovich. Because everything else had been done in his head. But, so that's the only game with a board in chess pieces and another player with intentions that he'd ever played, which is, you know, beautiful. Yeah, it's another proof that this author can write, right? You know, like kind of pinpoint and build this narrative through like this incredible patience, I feel. When Sentovich loses, the game is like 10 steps ahead, right, in their heads. And he just says, okay, um, I know what's gonna happen. It's funny how both of them kind of push around this refusal to finish games. And there's this argument about the rules of the game, because I mean, it, like Sentovich says at one point, like I have 10 minutes between each, like we, made, we agreed on these rules. I'm gonna use my 10 minutes each time. And uh, Dr. B at this point knows that he is going to lose by the way his imagination spins in that time. And he ends up, do he does lose given the rules of the game as given. And this kind of understanding, I think, is crucial to like Dr. B's breakdown. When we use the word like lose, he, he is the better chess player, I guess, ultimately. It, it, but, but given the rules of the game on the ground, he, he can't win. And that's interesting, the quote you brought up, David, with the amateur right because the funny line he finally speaks right <laughs> this is kind of is this peasant that's plotting and kind of uh it only cares about money as adrian says um, has no finer sensibility whatsoever and he says you're pretty good he's pretty good for an amateur and so that means he wasn't a professional and that does get this interesting question about the rise of professionalism i know we we're talking about this book in the politics but um part of the modern world too is this increasing movement towards the professional class and experts within a given field looking at this as this swan song for this older way of doing this amateur this kind of um person who who dabbles in things and by being able to do that you're able to touch new realms but you're defeated in this new world and what's funny though because it, i don't know if you i did some research on zweig and like you know, remember uh, uh, Kleist, uh, David, you've given me some work by Kleist before. Oh, yeah. Uh, German. Okay, it, this book reminded me a lot. And I, I was thinking of Kleist's own biography, which almost, it, 
it mirrors exactly with the suicide pact with the lover and this kind of nostalgia for an aristocratic sensibility that's lost in the modern landscape, which is weird because Kleist lived 100 years before this. And this story almost exactly mirrors that same complaint. And so like, as we push this towards the political, and I find it interesting because in Zweig's suicide note, he said, like, I know things will get better again. He says that. Like, I just don't want to wait. <laughs> and if we think about, like, him losing our character, Dr. B, losing the game, right? And I'm not trying to do a strict biographical correspondence here, but I think there is some uh, things that touch upon each other. Like, he's saying, like, I, I'm not going to wait. And then if you, if you know the history of Kleist, this, this famous German writer, he also has the same kind of maniacal, like, movement about him. This imagination that, that leaps and bounds ahead of the plotting world looking at a story like this and thinking about older versions of it, it is about the 1930s, but it's also about, I mean, just being a human and how our imagination works. I think that that's important to remember. And I think Zweig was always, and this might do with his background, but also just how his artistic sensibilities, just an, an outsider who could never locate himself and didn't want to uh, because of the cost of that. Uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. So I, I want to jump in on that just really quickly because I, I think you're you're right, and it's when we talk about fascism and liberalism uh, or left versus right, the, the way in which this story isn't explicitly political is that it's it's not it's not talking about that component of fascism. It's not talking about that component of politics. It's talking about the component of fascism that is explicitly anti-enlightenment and uncurious and anti-humanist. Also, to, to, to get back to what you were talking about with the confines of the game itself, the game of chess, and why it's important in the story that the story be bounded by something like a chess game, is that our society, every society, the society we live in, the society that Zweig lived in, or the society of Dr. B, in every society, there are these people within the society who are dramatically opposed to the society itself. If you're a humanist, if you believe in the enlightenment, if you believe in art and the arts, if you believe in the capacity of people to improve and get better, then one must have a completely inclusive society. But that society has within it people like Sentevich, who left their own devices, will exploit and destroy the society. Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, and I just want to clarify uh, one thing too. I said earlier how, you know, Zweig doesn't write about politics very often, and, except maybe in this case, and that's true, but he was a very political person for sure, and very active person fighting for his own values, uh, like you said, of uh, humanism and his own idea of um, very intellectual and, I guess also sort of bourgeois society of uh, Central Europe. He was a very literary person and corresponded with writers all around Europe. And he was an active, uh, you know, person on that scene. So sort of fighting for freedom of speech and freedom of expression and a lot of those other values. So he, he was actually very political, even um, campaigning for peace and against World War I. So he was always there politically, but it just doesn't really turn up in his work very much, except in the grand scheme, maybe in, um, in the way of like a Chekhov or something like that, or Nabokov, where you don't really find politics overtly, but kind of if you examine the characters and the context in some very intellectual way, you could see the politicization of it. But um, yeah, I think what's political about it is the values he portrays and also that, you know, his, his characters just contain a society in themselves usually, and every type of character. So you can almost take whatever you want from it. Yeah. And I mean, I think the idea of being, it's funny when you get these like political, apolitical debates. I mean, apolitical is a form of politics and this kind of expansiveness and openness This it this enlightened humanism, as Adrian pointed out, it's not wedded to a particular party or system, um, but this openness is, is very much present um, and from the work I've seen from him. And it, it's making me think like, in terms of when we think of the movement into the modern world, 
that is one aspect of it, right? We have this, like, an, this, this humanism, the enlightenment thinking, this expansiveness about human possibility. But at the same time, connected to it is this like greater efficiency uh, that comes with technology, that comes with this learning. And it's there from day one when we move into, I mean, when you move out of the Middle Ages. In that respect, uh, yeah, it's political because he's, he's firmly taking a side on one side of that debate. But you have this kind of increased efficiency and the question of the cost, what that cost that has to the imagination is um, old as um, Shakespeare. I mean, you have over and over in different ways. And I mean, Don Quixote Cervantes has the same kind of back and forth. I just wanted to, to point out that one, one aspect of being part of an old conversation. If you can't tell already, I'm a, a big admirer of this writer. And I read through a lot of his stuff a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, and I'm already starting to reread some of it. And, find uh, different levels, but I think he's uh, really one of the, a really great, but pretty much unheralded writer, uh, especially in English, you know, English uh, speaking world. So I'd, I'd recommend, you know, reading even more by him. You'll see a lot of the same types of patterns and characters, but it's always fresh and always um, really well-written prose, like chess story. Yeah. And that, I appreciated this recommendation, David, just because of what you said, and it's kind of the humane sensibility behind it. And I, I was reading more often, like he's still published in German. I mean, Germans love him. It harks back to an older world, but I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be an older world in that sense. When you think of like nostalgia, I mean, just being open to the idea of a humane conversation, this expansive society and an imagination that isn't limited is something that shouldn't be like pushed off as nostalgia. It made me remember that. And I think it, it, it's useful to have this be more part of the conversation. And it's unfortunate that we don't see many books like this in English. Our writers like this that are um, uh, read uh, as much as it sounds like the German still reads like, so. Right. And I, I think he knew this too. Even in his own, um, his own autobiography or memoirs, he called uh, the world of yesterday. And already when he was really popular in writing, he was writing about sort of an older world or a world which has already ceased to be, which is sort of the Central European and Habsburg milieu, so. Right. Yeah. It seems likely that there's a, a market for that. I don't know about likely, but certainly possible in our own time, because I think that the analogy there would be, you know, the 10 to 15 years where it, it seemed like before we went into, from the end of the USSR to us going into Iraq, when it seemed possible that the US, you know, and I, I you know, there were, there were many wonderful critics of what the US was doing at that time. But to myself in high school and college, you know, I, I, it, it seemed to me like there was a moment where the world could be shaped for the better and that those places where the world was not succeeding in improving were sort of um, part of the problem of improving, not um, characteristics of what was actually happening, which was not improving at all, but a kind of relentless exploitation. One of the, one of the uh, reasons that you have these, uh, you know, shows like Downton Abbey that are successful or pictures of uh, the Victorian era that are valorized or glamorized during and after World War One, looking back on it, and not just in Britain, but you know, uh, because of course the Victorian era is a British era, but also across Europe, in, in France as well, and in, you know, to a certain extent in the US, I think is because the experience of going through World War One was so bad that by proximity, one was able to say that the world before World War One was a better place in certain ways. <laughs> You know, the catastrophe of, of however many tens of millions of people died in the war and uh, the, the Kansas influenza and uh, the other things that, that occurred, that probably wasn't worth whatever happened afterwards. I don't know. Now, now that I'm thinking about it, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that that's, you know, our version of that, the, the 14 or 15 year Bella Pac of, of Pax Americana <laughs> from 1991 to 2004 uh, or 2005 was sort of uh, slight and meaningless by comparison. And it wasn't even that good. Um, yeah, if anybody thinks of any up-and-coming writers who uh, do write about this period, it, it, uh, you know, 
high level, let me know. But I think most of what we got out of it was different pop culture and movies and TV. And that was probably it. <laughs> Although maybe not. Quickly, I was thinking of uh, the pre-World War I um, fantasy era, also sort of the British equivalent in a way is P.G. Woodhouse on a very comic level. But, you know, this sort of a fantasy world where everything was perfect uh, before yeah, the I mean, war. <laughs> well, that's all, it takes place after the war, the Woodhouse stuff, a lot of it. But yeah, it's, I mean, that's a whole British thing we get into about t- treating it all as a joke. And I don't know if I agree about that period being like Adrian, I see what you're saying, but I think what's useful is that quote that David gave earlier with this idea. And actually, isn't it damn easy to think you're a great man if you aren't troubled by the slightest notion that a Rembrandt, Beethoven, Dante, or Napoleon ever existed. And whichever era you're talking about, like if you redefine greatness and limit it and settle, there's something very dangerous and sad about that. It happens probably in every era. Um, and I think this book is a useful reminder not to, to me, to limit what greatness can be and put a cap on not just imagination, but what art can do. We talked a lot in the past, the three of us, about like cynicism and things like that. I mean, I think this is a, an interesting attack on our criticism of a world that has imagined not just politically greater, but people themselves can be greater than they are. And I think that's also very important, back to that political thing. I don't know he's saying like, oh, if the Habsburgs took over the world, things would be better. I doubt that. I, I think he's saying we've given up faith in the individual and the possibilities that they have had within them. Um, hopefully writers are doing that somewhere, I hope. I think that's a great way to conclude this episode. And for the people who are listening, check in next time when we have another stimulating discussion. 